Mr. Armstrong often spoke about two trees. And some of us from time to time refer to these two trees. We just say something about the two trees. And those of us who have been around a long time understand what we're talking about. But I had a young person some years ago come up to, to me and say, what is this thing about the two trees? We hear about the two trees, but we don't know what it's about. So... The story behind the two trees is very simple. Toward the end of his life, Mr. Herbert Armstrong almost always began his sermons by going back to the beginning. He would often say that it's like coming into a movie when it's almost over. We're looking at things from the end of the age, end of 6,000 years of man's history. But unless you know what went before, It's hard to understand, in fact, impossible to fully understand what is happening and why it's happening today. So he would go back to the beginning. And that beginning is found in Genesis, the second chapter. And he would say something like, I'm going to tell you something you've never heard before. And I hear a few little chuckles there because we all knew that we'd heard it before. And we're thinking, well, that's what he spoke on the last time and the time before that and the time before that and the time before that. When Mr. Armstrong would get on to a subject, he would stay with it a long time. And it was interesting because the the discerning hearer would find that there might have been an extra frame or two put into the picture. And so when he said, I'm going to tell you something you've never heard before, it wasn't because he was forgetful. It was because he was adding just a little bit more to the overall picture. There was also a lot of repetition for the sake of making the point. Even God uses repetition from time to time in his word to emphasize a point. So today... Let's go back to the beginning and let's look at the two trees of which Mr. Armstrong spoke. We'll notice today that there are at least seven branches to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but we'll focus on two of them. So let's turn, first of all, to Genesis, the second chapter, right at the very beginning. We'll skip the first chapter there. We'll get into the second chapter in verse 8, where it says, The eternal God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the garden the Lord made, uh, God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the eye, to the sight, and good for food. Now when you think about all the different trees, uh, mango trees, uh, peach trees, for those of us who are living in this part of the country, cherry trees. I love cherries, uh, cherry pie especially. But you think of all the trees that God has made, and there are scores of different kinds of fruit trees as well as nut trees. And he made them pleasant for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see two specific trees mentioned, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's skip down to verse 16. Verse 15, I'll pick it up. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the eternal God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The sense was that he would bring upon himself the death penalty as soon as he ate of that tree. Not that he would die instantly. There's also the factor that with, with God a thousand years is, is a day, and a day is, is a thousand years. And while mankind lived, many men, up to the age of 900 plus years, no one ever finished that thousand year day as we might describe it. But the sense is that he would bring upon himself the death penalty once he partook of that tree. Now the third chapter, we find that the serpent is more cunning than any beast of the field, which the eternal God had made. The serpent comes along and he says to the woman, uh, you shall not eat of, has Lord God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said, well, we may eat of the tr- fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So the first mistake was allowing herself to get engaged into a discussion with a being that was far craftier than her. And so he told the first lie, you will not surely die. As I've explained in the past, this was tied in with the immortal soul idea. For God knows that in the day that you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, if you've seen any of the Indiana Jones movies, the uh, Knight Templar that is watching over the Holy Grail, Adam chose poorly. He chose to reject God's instruction book for life, and he chose the way of human self-will. He chose the way of choosing for himself to determine right from wrong. And the end result of that is found at the end of the chapter, beginning of verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know or to determine good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the eternal God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man... And he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turns every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so he was cut off from the tree of life. And as we can read in the book of Matthew, when the disciples asked, why do you speak in parables? Jesus pointed out that it was not given to everyone to understand, only to certain ones. And so we see that mankind as a whole has been cut off from God. We may take that for granted today, 
But that's a revolutionary thought when you think about it in religion. Mr. Armstrong taught us that lesson. It's there in the scriptures, numerous places, in various ways. But it is very evident that mankind has been cut off from an understanding of the truth. All we have to do is look around us. And by anybody's definition of Christianity, well, I cannot say that. Origen said that if someone used true reason, then he's a Christian, even if he's an atheist or Aristotle or Socrates, whatever, not Aristotle, but Socrates and Plato, I guess. He pointed out that they were Christians. So according to most people's definition of Christian, most people are not. And yet there are those that think that everybody can come to Christ if they want to. Of course, they have to know about Christ in order to come to him. So mankind was cut off. God cut him off for 6,000 years. As Mr. Armstrong used to say, you have 6,000 years. Do your own thing. Set up your own forms of government, health care, education, industry and commerce, science, technology. Set it all up yourself and do your own thing. You've got 6,000 years to see how well it works. If we're to sum up the message of the two trees... It's that there are two opposite ways of life. One looks to God and his revelation on how to live. The other relies on human reason alone. Now, God gave us an incredible mind, an amazing mind, when you think about it, to be able to send men to the moon and bring them back safely, to be able to travel around the world as we do on jet aircraft incredibly safely. It's amazing when you think about it. I, w- I was shocked and stunned when the, uh, the last death uh, was southwest. Uh, there was an individual that was uh, killed on a southwest uh, jet, just a single individual. And they said that was the first death on an American carrier in nine years. And the first death ever on southwest, I believe it was. Amazing how safe air travel is. The speed with which we travel Uh, The distances, the number of planes in the air, it's rather incredible. Now, there are plane crashes from time to time around the world, sometimes in this country, but it is amazing. The mind that God has given us to build and to construct the beautiful bridges, the buildings that we see, the intricate uh, uh, instruments that we do have, it is remarkable the mind that God has given to us. And when it comes to reasoning out physical things, we're pretty good. We're really pretty good at it. We've even learned how to kill each other in a massive way. Maybe that's not so good. But when it comes to getting along with one another, we don't do so well, do we? We must learn to reason within the limits of God's moral code. I'd like to read a little bit here from... The 1969 Ambassador College Envoy, the year that I graduated, my wife graduated as well from Ambassador College. I believe uh, Mr. Ben Whitfield also, and there are several others in the ministry that graduated that same year, year, his wife, and uh, a few others. Dr. Winnell was at Ambassador College at the time. And this is a beautiful, beautiful 
a work of art in itself. And it goes through, before it gets into all the pictures of everybody, it goes through a little history. In fact, the first chapter you might say is history. Is experience the best teacher or only the costliest? And it shows that experience for man has not worked very well, has it? We never learn from our mistakes. We talk about history, learning from history, but how well have we learned? You might call that one branch of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. We, we don't learn from history. That's not the best teacher. Not nearly so good as having instruction and living according to that instruction. What about education? It says, next we must examine education, for it is the mother which spawned the scientists, captains of industry and business, politicians and rulers, leaders in modern society, and the theologians. Today's sick, chaotic world of violence is the product of its leaders. They, in turn, are the product of modern education. Education is defined, according to Encyclopedia Botanica, as a system by which adult leaders of a society inject their philosophies, ideas, customs, and culture into the minds of the growing generation. Boy, do we see a problem today in what is being injected into the minds of young people. They have no idea, no sense of history, partly because that's being distorted and not taught, of what, what life is really all about. Not because they're unintelligent, but because they're being indoctrinated with stuff that is awful. Just got a letter here that uh, Monica had passed on to me yesterday from a member, and she gives permission to use it. 11-year-old daughter committed suicide. Parents are atheists, and this, this woman blames the Alberta school system and its LGBT movement for the, their daughter, her granddaughter's death. I don't know all the details of it, but very sad. This is what's happening in education. Our education is becoming terribly corrupt. Just uh, this last week or the week before, we got a report showing that Scotland is the first country in the world to really enforce the, as a whole country, uh, the injection into this LGBT movement among the, the school children where they cannot opt out. Parents can't opt them out of it. It's going to be forced on them, as it already is in some locales, but the first country, and they see themselves as very enlightened. And it's amazing how one country after another, one state after another, one school after another, one province after another, wants to get out ahead of everybody else in these things. What a world in which we live. That's our education system. The bottom line is that education is failing. In modern education, we find perpetuation of false values, the teaching of distorted history, Warped psychology, perverted arts and sciences, worthless knowledge. A tree is known by its fruits. A mixed up, unhappy and fearful world in chaos, divided against itself, filled with heartaches, frustrations, broken homes, juvenile delinquents, crime, insanity and violence, devoid of honesty, truth and justice. Now facing extinction by cosmicide is the fruitage, the fruit of modern education. 
It turns next to science and technology. Remember this 1969 has a picture of the moon landing and in the background a small child with a bowl, kind of an emaciated small child starving while we go to the moon. Science technology, wonders and more wonders. Science and technology now promise before 1980 to produce a magic push-button dream world of leisure, luxury, and license. It even dangles before the incredulous but worshipful eyes of the world the hope that it may center on humanity the means of living on forever in this flesh-and-blood existence. Today's world looks with awe at modern science as a Messiah to deliver it from poverty, pain, and suffering, from the drudgery of labor to give it the heaven of idleness and ease. But what has it given us? The principal contribution of science and technology has been the production of constantly more terrifying weapons of mass destruction. Push-button world? Yes. Today, either of two men Either of two men could push a button and destroy two whole continents, probably ending in the extinction of mankind. Modern science stands exposed as a false messiah, the Frankenstein monster about to destroy us all. It turns to commerce and industry and asks certain questions here. Is honesty the best policy? A recent magazine survey put the question to 103 business executives. An overwhelming majority doubted whether a strictly honest policy would enable a man to rise to the top in the business world. Only two of the 103 answered yes, and one of these said he knew he was being naive. Here are pertinent comments. Quote, people who don't get dirty don't make it. Or another one, in 30 years, I've known of only three men who have reached executive positions cleanly, and I admit I'm not one of them. Or this comment, the higher the executive is in the management ladder, the more likely he is to do some dirty work. Our tour here discovers selfish motivation, disregard for public good, sharp practices, dishonesty, dog-eat-dog competition, not the true values that would give happiness to the world. And what about governments? We turn to governments. Now we view the governments over the peoples of today's modern world. Governments promise peace but bring wars. They promise benefits while extracting from the people the price of the benefits plus excessive costs of government. As the way I always put it is, politicians bribe us with our own money. And we fall for it every time as people. Government promises are empty. While government treasuries are full, we fail to find here any knowledge of life's purpose or dissemination of the true values. It talks about the social order. What does the world civilization mean to the average person? Webster's defines civilization as the advancement of social culture, a state of social culture characterized by relative progress in the arts, science, and statescraft. The antonym, the opposite, barbarism, savagery. But when you look about our culture today, what is it about? Premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, and other perversions and public nudity is now making its first shocking appearance before a world gradually becoming uninhabited and drugged into acceptance. Well, remember this is 1969. 
It wasn't nearly as far down the road toward Sodom as it is today. And finally, it turns to religion. Surely we should expect to find at last in religion the knowledge of life's purpose, the true values and the right way. But as it ends the uh, paragraph or the uh, write-up on this, it says, Here at last we find the foundation, the starting point of all knowledge. And then it points to the Ambassador College campuses as producing something very different. Absolutely beautiful publication. If you've never seen it, we have some in the library. I'm sure that there are those around who have these publications and show the beauty, the absolute beauty of those Ambassador College campuses. But even there, individuals crept in and brought about a different agenda and were very good at destruction. They didn't know how to build, but they certainly knew how to destroy. So let's look at two branches of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We've just surveyed very quickly seven, and I'm sure that there are more. Any tree has major branches and minor branches, and all of them kind of fit together in a way because they have the same trunk. They come from the same basis, the same roots. It's the same tree, and so they overlap a bit. Just as with any tree, one branch overlaps the other or branches into another one. But let's look at two of them. The first one is education. We touched on that a bit. But let's go back to Genesis 3 once again and verse 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desired to make one wise. A tree that would make one wise. It was desirable in that way. Then she took of the fruit and ate of it, and she gave also to her husband. As I've pointed out in uh, times past, in 1 John 2, verse 16, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And when we see those three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life, that's what we see here in verse 6, that it was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desired to make one wise. And what we have there, the pride of life. And isn't it interesting that education is that way? Wrong education certainly is, and people can use right education in the wrong way. You can come here to... What we had before, uh, well, we can go all the way back to Ambassador College or to Living University or to Living Education, and one can get puffed up because I know something that somebody else doesn't know. I know more than the other individual. And a freshman in college uh, simply means it comes from, I'm sorry, a freshman, he's fresh, but a sophomore, that's the second year, comes from the term that means a wise fool, because after you've been through a year, you know the ropes, and you're more than happy to show how knowledgeable you are to the incoming freshmen. It's kind of a natural thing. I've often said that the first class that people take when they go to university is Arrogance 101. It infects doctors, lawyers, and even theologians. It doesn't have to, it shouldn't, but it can. Notice over in 
1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter. The Apostle Paul understood this. 1 Corinthians 8. Now, I'm not trying to put down education. Education is very important. The right kind of education, especially. Now, if you want to build an airplane or you want to build a bridge, engineer a bridge, then it's good that you go someplace that will teach you those physical things. If you want to know how to live, that's not where you're going to find it, though. You won't find that in the universities. All they'll teach you is how not to live. Here in verse in First uh, Corinthians 8, in verse 1, it says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge can puff up. Reading of books can make you think that you're smarter than the next fellow. But I've known some people that were very poorly educated when it came to formal education who had an awful lot of common sense and the ability to figure things out and do things. There are a lot of shade tree mechanics. Well, there used to be. Nobody can figure out modern cars. But there are a lot of people that knew how cars ran. And they could figure out, is it not getting spark? Is it not getting fuel? Is it not getting proper oxygen or something? And they they could figure out what's taking place here, what's causing the problem, and they could fix it. They may not have had a university education, but there were a lot of shade tree mechanics years gone by. A lot of farmers today can fix a lot of things that someone knows about computers have no idea, although even they're becoming computerized as well. And so it's just a point that there are many different kinds of knowledge, and we need to have respect for everyone. Uh, There are different ways of expressing that knowledge and that understanding. But everybody has an education one way or the other. It may not be formal, but it may be a very good education. Mr. Armstrong never went to college, but he had honorary degree, Degrees, I believe it was, from various places. He certainly had a lot of wisdom, a lot of understanding. And we know where he got the majority of it there. So let's look at this first branch, this branch of education. We see that knowledge puffs up. There is a certain amount of pride that can go along with it. In Romans, the first chapter, we read here in verse 20, Romans 1, 20, We often turn to Romans, the first chapter. But here it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made. All we have to do is look about us and we figure out that somebody made it. And yet how many people go to university or even high school and think that they're so smart and think that they know that we evolved from something else and look down on you and me because we believe in God. And yet we look about us and we say, this didn't happen by chance. They don't like the word chance. So I like to throw out Richard Dawkins, the blind watchmaker, blind chance. You can, you can spin it any way you want to but it's blind chance in reality, what's what they're believing. And that you and I, as we sit here, 
with the brains that God has created within us just happen to happen. I notice they've got a new computer now for artificial intelligence, and they figure it's come up to the intelligence of a mouse, something like that. It, 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 it's only one, whatever it is, huge number of human capacity. But if the picture is right, it's taking up a whole room. And yet, God gave us minds that fit in our heads, some larger or smaller, but within these bone, this bone structure. We have eyes that can see, that take in light, and we can discern very clearly, at least many of us can see clearly, one another. And we hear. Noise goes into our ear, and it kind of rattles around there through whatever it is, and the... the um, there are little fibers in there, and there's the eardrum, and somehow that's transferred into waves that go into the brain, and we understand. Somebody was showing us a booklet, Mr. Smith, I guess, yesterday, written in, was it Sin the Leaves? I think so. Now, when I looked at that, it made absolutely no sense to me. What do you call it? They look like little little piggies. Yeah, it looks like all the letters look like little piggies. Um, but isn't it amazing that a human being someplace else in the world probably can look at that and it makes all the sense in the world and he looks at what we write and he says, boy, that looks like, you know, little stick men, whatever he wants to call it. And, and all of this incredible power that God has put inside the brain to be able to understand you know, they, they look and they can't understand the things that are made. Even the uh, eternal power in Godhead, that they, so that they are without excuse. God, or Paul says that they're without excuse because if they just opened their eyes and saw what's around them, they could figure this out. Because, verse 21, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Exactly it. The wrong kind of education can puff up and make any one of us think that we are wiser than we really are when in reality we become nothing more than a fool. In 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 7, Start uh, verse 1, actually. It says, But know this, that in the last days perilous, dangerous times will come. And then it describes the behaviors and attitudes and thought processes of our modern age. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of themselves, self-will, self-actualization, self-esteem, self-this, self-that. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. You can read the list there. Disobedient to parents. This is our world. And then it says in verse 6, For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
I, I admire people who are great students, not because they know more than, than we know, but study for some of us is hard work. For others, it comes more naturally. But there are people who put tremendous energy into study. When you look at some books that people have written, uh, what is it, the, the History of, of Man or the History of Man, uh, William, uh, Will and uh, uh, what is it, uh, Durant? I guess Will and Ariel Durant, I think it is. Those are big books. I, it takes me a long time to read them. What would it be like trying to write them? There are people out there with a great understanding wisdom, but many of them are always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They can't figure out the Sabbath. They can't figure out what they should put in their mouths and what they should not. In fact, if they go to a university, they might learn all kinds of stuff that they shouldn't do. How many times have we had been told things like, for example, margarine is supposed to be so good compared to butter. And I remember as early as uh, about 1971, plus or minus a year, where uh, DeBakey, the uh, very famous heart surgeon out of uh, Houston, said, don't eat margarine. It doesn't melt at body temperature. Now, of course, they have the liquid kind now. He said, butter is far better. But for decades following that, we were still told not to eat butter. In fact, you go to the hospital, what do they do? They give you margarine. At least they used to. I don't know what they give you now. As though that's supposedly better. There are a lot of things being taught in the world today that are just totally wrong. I'm not saying that doctors don't know anything. Obviously, that doctor knew something. That's why he was at the top of, of uh, the list, I think, the two f- most famous doctors, DeBakey and Christian Bernard out of South Africa. They knew something, but the schools were not churning that information out. Ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Contrast this with God's way. Let's go back to the book of Proverbs, the first chapter. Proverbs 1 and verse 7. And this a similar comment is made elsewhere in Scripture, in the book of Psalms. But here it says in verse 7 of Proverbs 1, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's not the end of knowledge, but it's the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Notice over in chapter 3, Proverbs 3, verse 5. It says, trust in the eternal with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. You see, these are the two trees, trusting in God, or as Adam and Eve did, trusting in their own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the eternal and depart from evil. Why does God want us to do that? Is it because he wants us to... Avoid all fun things. No, he says, it will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. This is written to a great degree for young people. It's also written for those of us who are older. I noticed something here. I was going through it the other day, and I picked up something that somehow I had missed. If I can find it here, 
chapter, where is it? I underlined it. Um, no, don't remember where, where it was, but anyway, it, it talks about trouble when it comes, when it comes. Uh, we, we often think that it, it may not come, but it's, it's when it comes. In other words, it's going to come. Trouble is going to come, but God is going to take care of us if we, uh, if we uh, follow his way. Anyway, I can't. Oh, here it is, right in front of me. Chapter 3, uh, verse 25. It says, Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. Now, it's a little point, perhaps, but you can read some of these things a hundred times and miss little points. And none of us are too old to still learn. He said, don't be afraid of sudden terror. Sudden terror can happen. It does come. It might be on the highway. Nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. Not if it comes, but when it comes. We can expect trouble from the wicked. Certainly from the wicked one, Satan, but from wicked people. So he's not saying if, but when. We can expect as human beings that trouble will come to one degree or another. Here in chapter thirteen, uh, chapter 3, once again, let's begin in verse 13. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. You see, this is the tree of life that we're looking at, to find godly wisdom. Verse 16, length of days is in her right hand, speaking of wisdom. In her left hand, riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She, wisdom, is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all those who retain her. Wisdom, it's a tree of life as opposed to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which brings death. Over in Psalm, the first chapter, we sing this psalm so often. It's in our book. We sing it often. But notice what it says. Blessed, verse 1, Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. You know, he says you shouldn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And then he pictures the individual standing in the path. You're walking in the council or along with the ungodly, you stop and you talk, you stop and stand in the path of sinners and then finally sit down in the seat of the scornful, the cynic, the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So we would be like a tree. We're not the tree of, the, of life, but we would be a tree that is living, as it were, in this context. A tree that is prospering, a tree that is producing leaves and fruit and so forth, beside a river where it has plenty of water to grow and to prosper. But in verse 4, the ungodly, the one that partakes of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall stand in the judgment, shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the eternal knows the way of righteousness, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Why is it that we try so hard to instill in young people God's way of life? Why do we try so hard? Many teens, we did, we thought that way when we were teens. We, we thought that well, they're just trying to keep me from fun. But dad, he's just too strict. Or they don't trust me. We hear that sometimes. And so sometimes we hear from a young person, many of us have said it before, you don't know what it's like. You don't understand. You don't know what it's like. There's one thing. Young people, well, maybe getting caught up in certain things emotionally, have good minds. They can understand. I, I have absolute faith that young people can understand proper reason. They may not agree with it, but they can understand it. And I guess the reason I believe that way is because I know when I was young, when I heard something that made sense, and it's hard to admit it sometimes, we could understand it. I could open up the literature of the church and read it and open up my Bible and I could understand a fair amount at age 16, 17, 18. So I believe that I wasn't unusual. I believe that other young people can do the same. So let me say this. When you think, well, you just don't know what it's like when you think that way toward your parents. Because I, I thought that way. I think every teenager thinks that way at some time over some issue. Understand this. Every adult who's in this room, in fact, every adult in the world was a teenager once. We understand what it's like to be a teenager. We understand infatuation, hurt feelings, feeling left out. Granted, we may have forgotten a little bit how terribly serious we felt at the time, but we understand it because we've been there. We know what it's like to think the world has come to an end because somebody broke up with you or you failed a class or whatever it might be. We understand that. But I think all of you who are young know something else, and that is that you've never been an adult. You know what it's like to be a teenager, but your parents know what it's like to be a teenager and then to be an adult and look over history and see what's good and what is not. In the uh, November-December Living Church News, I don't know if that's out yet. I, I couldn't find my issue there. But I wrote an article, a Dear Brethren article, and I talked about the summer camps a little bit. If you haven't got it, you'll get it soon. But it says, I, I wrote in there, as adults, we made plenty of mistakes. Mom and Dad made a lot of mistakes growing up. Oh, yes, young people have their share but for many, their mistakes are small, and recovery is short and complete. The younger you are, generally speaking, the easier your mistakes are to overcome. You fall down. You skin your knee. 
And that's probably not going to be fatal unless you get some infection. Now, if you run out in front of a car, that's a pretty serious mistake. But there are other mistakes that are not so easy. Recovery is short and complete with young people, not always so with those of us who have lived a bit longer. Our sins have taken a toll, but we see children and teens with the opportunity of doing it right. They do not have to damage their lives with drugs, illicit sex, squandering precious years of preparation for later life. They see the highway through the windscreen ahead. A little bit of Ephraimite lingo there, windscreen, windshield, for those of us who are in uh, Manassites or living in this country. They see the highway through the windscreen ahead. We see it through the rear view mirror. We're looking back at all the mistakes that we made, and we desperately want you to do better because we know that there are penalties for these things. We know that there's a price to pay when you violate God's law. When you partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there's a price for it. The tree of life is different. Young people, you're living in a world that is choosing the wrong tree. The world you're living in is choosing. It only has the tree of life or the tree of death. The tree that leads to life and the tree that leads to death. The tree of blessings on one side and the tree of cursings on the other side. Just the two trees, that's all, two. And the world in which you live is choosing the wrong tree. Adam was foolish. Don't follow in his footsteps. Now, the second branch is religion. Second branch, and it's so closely associated with the first. But the second branch that we're going to look at is religion. God gave mankind good laws by which to live. He also gave rituals. And please do not criticize the term ritual. By which to learn about him and his plan. There are rituals of one sort or another. We might call them traditions, uh, whether they be traditions based on the Bible or traditions based on the world or whether we want to call them rituals. Some people look at keeping the holy days as ritualistic. But isn't Christmas and Easter a ritual as well, a tradition, a way of doing things? You know, why does God give us certain rituals? Let's take the holy days and the festivals, for example. With God's festivals and holy days, he gives us these, it's, we can use the word ritual in this context, he gives us these rituals to keep every year or the Sabbath once a week because they teach us lessons. They teach us about God and they teach us about his plan that he has for us. But the rituals of this world, Christmas and Easter and Sunday observance and all the rest that goes along with it, is a counterfeit. And it's steeped in heathen practices and it does not teach us about God and his plan. It distracts and takes away from the true God and his plan. And it leaves us empty at the end. God gave a 
a pattern of his dwelling place back in the book of Exodus. And in the eighth chapter of Hebrews, we learn something about that tabernacle that he instructed Moses to build. Let's notice in the eighth chapter, verse one. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Talking about Jesus Christ, our high priest for us. And, and we know that the high priest in Israel was a type of Christ to come. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord directed and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, Christ, also have something to offer. Now, Hebrews 8, again, uh, verse 4, continuing, it says, For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now, we know that the Ark of the Covenant that was put in the holy place with a veil was picturing where God dwelt on the mercy seat, God of mercy, with the Ten Commandments inside, and that veil blocking the way access to it at that time, and the altar of incense, the incense being a type of prayer, being offered up before God, before the high priest could go in there. And then we had the table of showbread, and we had something called the candlestick or candlesticks, the menorah. Let's notice that over in Exodus, the 25th chapter, and let's read about the candlestick there, or the lampstand. We'll start in Exodus 25, verse 31. It says, You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. Notice that God used very valuable elements in the making of the tabernacle. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. And six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of the one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch. The almond tree apparently is the early tree that, that blossoms out. Almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower, and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. It's describing a tree in reality. It has blossoms and so forth, bowls and flowers talking about a tree in reality. And what does this tree do? It brings light. You know, the tree of life also brings light. Notice over in Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6. 
There was a reason why God made everything exactly so, just exactly the way he wanted it. Why he told Moses to do everything according to the pattern that has been shown to you. He didn't do it just because he thought, well, it'd be kind of interesting to make something ornamental. It was ornamental, but it had a purpose behind it. Here in Proverbs 6 and verse 20, it says, My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. And then it goes on to give an example of how it can keep you out of trouble. The law is a lamp. It's a light to show us the way. When they went into the first part of the tabernacle and the lights were lit, they could see. If they weren't lit, it was dark, and they couldn't see. It was giving them light. It was no doubt symbolic of far more than just a candlestick. In Psalm 119, Psalm 119 and verse 105, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The the lamp is to give light so that we can see where we're going, so that we don't stumble. Satan comes along with his lamp, his tree. I don't want to make more of this than should be made. Uh, I'm not saying there's an exact connection here, but it is interesting that the way that uh, these things are presented. Here in, uh, in, in Jeremiah, the 10th chapter, we're told not to learn the way of the, uh, the heathen. He speaks of the house of Israel. Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the custom of the peoples are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They're upright like a palm tree. Not that they are a palm tree, but like a palm tree. And they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. Now, God gives us a lamp to see. And he describes the lamp of God as showing the way of life. Now, Satan comes along with a a different kind of a a, a tree, you might say. Uh, Again, I don't want to carry this analogy, this metaphor, further than it was ever intended in Scripture, but the Apostle Paul you know, talked about Sinai and, and uh, uh, the, other, uh, the other mountain there. And uh, there are analogies that we can make from these things as long as we understand the limits of it. But he comes along with his tree, and he makes it beautiful. You see, God's lampstand was beautiful, but it gave light. Man's lampstand is beautiful, but where does it lead? You see, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil has e-cigarettes hanging on it. 
drug paraphernalia of one sort or another. Uh, it, it offers premarital or extramarital sex. That's what's hanging on that tree. Now, it is true that trees have been worshipped anciently. It isn't just the, the tree that we have today, but they had trees that were worshipped, the golden bough and Hislop's two Babylons point this out. They weren't the evergreen tree that we know of today because of the part of the world that they were worshipped in, but they had trees and they hung little ornaments on them, gold and silver and so forth. The evergreen that we see in Christmas today has come down from from northern Europe, even Scandinavia. Uh, we know that the, the origins of it are a little bit different, but it's still the same thing, the worship of trees. We don't worship a tree, but the tree in the tabernacle gives light. The trees that man has, people bow down to, and we say, well, we don't worship, but then we sing songs. I won't. Yes, I will. Sorry about it, because you're going to hear it in every mall. Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, yeah. They say they don't worship it. Well, so much for that. They don't worship it in the way that people anciently did, but it's a part of the ritual, part of the traditions of this world. God offers us light. Satan comes along and he gives us something very different. Notice Proverbs 13 and verse 9. Proverbs 13 in verse 9, you see, Satan offers a lamp of a sort. Um, actually talking, of, and, and the words are all the same here when it speaks of lamp. But uh, lamp here is, is the light of the individual, you might say. Proverbs 13, 9, it says, The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. The lamp of the wicked is going to be put out, but the light of the righteous rejoices. Notice Proverbs 20 and verse 20. He says, whoever curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in deep darkness. Sometimes we refer to a boxing match where he, his lights were put out. Uh, one of them got hit so hard that his uh, lights went out. Well, that's what's going to happen ultimately to the wicked, to those who curse father and mother. That's the ultimate penalty. The lights are going to be put out. An aspect of this whole thing about the two trees is that there's no middle tree. There are really only two trees. There's not a third tree someplace in the middle. Notice Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter, one of the memorization scriptures that we have. I'll start in verse 15. But God really offers only two ways. Verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good. Now, that's what God is offering to you and to me because we understand these things. We have been called, our young people, by virtue of the fact that your parents are called, you have the opportunity to make the choice, the right choice. I set before you this day life and good. That's what some of us who are older know, that this is the way that brings good and life. 
And on the other hand, we see death and evil. That's the other choice. And then I command you today to love the eternal your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the eternal your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. There are blessings for those who follow God's way, that partake, as it were, of the tree of life. There are blessings. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear, and you choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you just follow along with society that is going toward, toward destruction and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, other gods such as the self, self-will, that's a false god, or the glitter that is out here in the world. If you put that first in your life, Then he says, verse 18, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. Now he's speaking to the nation as a whole. But there is that individual point as well. He says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Now sometimes... For example, in sex education classes, as I understand, they will show this. these are the alternatives. But they don't love you like your parents do. They don't love us, those of us who are older, as God does. Because notice that God goes on to say through Moses here, therefore, choose life. Please, choose life that both you and your descendants may live that you may love the eternal your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him. For he is your life in the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the eternal swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Now, we know there are always exceptions to all of this. Some evil people live long lives. Some righteous people live short lives. We know that. We understand that. But as a basic statement, and he's talking to Israel as, as a whole, that if You, as a nation, go astray. This is going to be the consequence. God wants us to have a good life. He wants us to be blessed. In 1 Kings, the 18th chapter, we find, again, that there are only two trees. 1 Kings 18. Here were people that were confused. They wanted to straddle the middle. They wanted to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, as it were. 1 Kings 18. And you really can't. Either one foot is uh, is one way or it's the other way. You can't straddle the middle. It doesn't work. 1 Kings 18.21. Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the eternal is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. If this world is what has, you know, is, is, is right in offering you whatever it's offering you. In other words, if blessings and life are going to come from this world, then go for it. But if blessings and life come from God, then go for that. You can't split the middle. There are only two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, choosing your own way to do things, or the tree of life where we accept that God knows better than we do. 
And all of us struggle with that all the time, where we think our way is going to work out better than God's way. And it never does, not in the end. Just as there are two trees, there are two churches. Revelation 12 speaks of the righteous church, speaks of the Israel of God. Revelation 17 speaks of a very different church. Now, it comes in many different stripes because it has harlot daughters, but really two religions, God's religion or Babylon. Just as there are two cities, Babylon represents this world. And we're told in Revelation 18 to come out of her. Or there's Jerusalem, Jerusalem above, Jerusalem of tomorrow's world. Zechariah 14 talks about how Christ is going to be king over all the earth. It doesn't mention by name, but it's speaking of the Messiah. He's going to be king over all the earth in verse 9. And the verses 16 and 19, it shows that people are going to go up to Jerusalem to worship the king. Two cities. One is Babylon, started by Nimrod. The other is Jerusalem, the city that we look to for the future. Mr. John O'Gwen has a, a wonderful sermon out there. For those of you who are new and have never heard Mr. O'Gwen, uh, please go to the website, the Living Church of God site, lcg.org site, and look up a, a biblical tale of two cities, a biblical tale of two cities, talking about Babylon and Jerusalem. Before his death, Mr. Herbert Armstrong warned against Protestantism. Many of us remember that. He had a, uh, the, the worldwide news had a very large article about uh, warning against Protestantism. And he would give this sermon about the two trees all the time, not exactly the sermon I'm giving you here. He could do it his own way, uh, which was always uh, so effective. But he also told us time and time again in the context of the two trees that half of you don't get it. And he would, you know, shake his, pound the, the table and, and jog and shake. And I don't believe half of you get it. And later on, many of us remember that he said, I think only 10% of you get it. So what happened? What happened? The last sermon I gave in the Worldwide Church of God, I pointed out, here are all these changes that are taking place. I have three questions. Why such massive changes? Where is it headed? And what should be our response? And the why was very clear, that there was a hostility toward Mr. Armstrong, really toward the Bible, not just Mr. Armstrong, but toward the Bible, the message of the Bible, but everything that, that uh, the church taught. There was a hostility there. And where was it headed? Right into Protestantism, going right back to the Protestant church. Now, you look today, what happened to that church? It's a Protestant church. Uh, it's, I say it's a Protestant church. It, it has accepted the doctrines of Protestantism. It didn't exactly come out of the, the Catholic church. It, but spiritually, that's where it is. And yet Mr. Armstrong warned us against that. He said that half of you don't get it, talking about the two trees, even only a tenth of you may get it. 
he was far closer to being accurate with the 10% than the 50%. It's amazing. We can hear things and not get it. In Genesis, the third chapter, as we've seen there, that God cut mankind off from the tree of life. He put cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life. But because of God's calling, you and I are given the same choice that Adam had. In reality, maybe it's different circumstances, but we have the same choice he had. We can choose the tree of life, looking to God, or we can choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is looking to self to determine right and wrong. In Revelation, the 22nd chapter, we'll turn over there, Revelation 22. It's interesting how the Bible is so marvelously put together. Different author, different language, 1,500 years apart, all those things, and yet there's a consistent message through it. Here in verse 1, it says, He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. Now, there's a lot that I don't understand about this, but I think we get the picture that in the New Jerusalem, there's going to be the tree of life. And it yields different fruits, and it says on both sides of the river, so it must be not just a single tree in that sense, but it is a single kind of a tree, the tree of life. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Verse 5, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Then verse 6, he said to them, These are faithful and true. These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. And then down in verse 14, I'll close with this. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the new city of Jerusalem.